How are you doing today? Hope you're well. Pleasure to worship with you and uh, to be with you this morning. We're going to turn your attention now to the Gospel of John, and we're working through. Um, you can see in my Bible, um, the, this is the section we're in right now. There's a lot of highlights because I preached on all the other parts, but the part we're going to do right now has nothing, no, no notes. This is the first time I get to preach on this one. <laughs> um, and I think if you're doing a fast reading of the gospel, you might even consider it like a, a flyover text. Like, all right, I'm just kind of getting the summation of what's going on. But I'm really actually excited because I think there's some things in here that are, uh, are really interesting and really informative about uh, Jesus' life and how we can be good disciples and follow him. And so if you would, would you pray with me and we'll look at the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time we have together. Help us to be here ever present with you, um, to stay abiding in your loving spirit, Lord Jesus, um, that you freely give um, as an expression of your sacrifice for us, your help towards us, your care towards us, your compassion towards us. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray uh, that you would uh, now make us open, good soil, ready to receive what you would have for us. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're in John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. We'll go through verse 57 can follow along in your pew Bibles or on the screen, or if you brought one, you get bonus points. Here are these words. It says this, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the is he coming to the festival at all? 
But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. David Foster Wallace, the late author, in a commencement speech he gave in 2005 to the graduating class of Kenyon College, started with this parable. He said this, There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, And then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what is water? What is water? And Wallace explains that the point of the fish story is simply that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. The obliviousness to the water of our lives is the essence of our default setting. Unexamined, unconscious motivations that drive a lot of our decision-making. The things that lurk around inside of us that we don't pay attention to that motivate our behavior. Now think of that idea in light of what we just read. I get to point out something interesting to you. Maybe you've already seen it if you're a good student. But it's something that if you're flying over the text, I don't think you're going to observe in the text. But it's there, and it's really interesting, especially if you're a Bible geek like me. Okay, so in John eleven forty nine, let me read to you this again. These are the words of Caiaphas, the chief high priest, in light of what has just happened, the resurrection of Lazarus, this great miracle that Jesus has performed. He has gathered his gang, his crew, the religious elite, and they're having a conversation about Jesus. And this is what he says. It is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In John eleven forty nine, 49, here in this text, we see a profound irony, the use of irony in the Gospel of John that's worth examining very closely to see something true coming from a very unexpected place. The high priest is justifying a conspiracy to kill Jesus, to commit murder, by saying it is better for one man to die than for the people of an entire nation to perish. He is preaching the gospel. He just doesn't know what it means. He's so close. The very truth of those words are coming out of his mouth, and yet they are coming as a justification for murdering Jesus. This is a use of dramatic irony. And scholars would point out, this is what could be known as the fifth gospel. You see, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But then we have the preachers of the gospel that we would never expect. Jesus' enemies. That out of the words of Jesus' enemies, we can also learn who Jesus is. But in a very unexpected place. They're so close to it. But they can't see it. 
they don't understand what water is. They don't understand what they're swimming in. And so they can use this message that would later become the very cornerstone of Christianity in order to justify killing Jesus. Adding another layer of irony to this text, we can jump up just one verse. Everyone, it was said by the Sanhedrin, will believe in Jesus. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ironically, in 70 AD, the Romans came and took away the Jewish place and nation. The very thing that they were afraid of actually happened. The truth found in the most unexpected of places. And this double irony highlights the tragic irony that pervades this situation where the very actions that are taken in an attempt to preserve their faith are the very things that lead to their destruction. You see, that's where we might want to ask the important question. How can a group so close to the truth that they can have it come out of their mouth yet be so far from it in their actions and living in light of the truth that they see it as a reason to bring about death and destruction. What is it? Maybe you can see it. The most obvious surface-level answer to this would be they're afraid. That fear is motivating them. That the, the, way, the decisions they're making, what they're talking about, is out of a sense that they are threatened by Jesus. Fear loves to live in the dark, doesn't it? Right? Maybe you can remember, uh, I can remember as a little kid, your experiences with darkness. I grew up in a place, it was kind of more of a wilderness setting, not, a, not a, so much of a city setting. And I'd play basketball until it got dark, and we had one light over our driveway, but then you could just look off into the forest of darkness. And it was only so long before my mind started to swirl about what was out there and I would just drop the ball and run right into the house, right? Because fear sort of lurks in the darkness. It doesn't sort of, it does lurk in the darkness. And it loves unchecked, unintentioned. It loves the places that have been unexplored and uninvestigated and it can just amp up the threat and do make you future trip, right? And that's exactly what's happening in this text. This is uh, an, another example, actually the culmination of an example that we have already studied in the gospel that I just want to point out one other story where there's a lot of irony in the story that helps us to understand this dynamic between Jesus and the Pharisees. You remember it. It's from John chapter 9. It's one of the most vivid and dramatic stories of when Jesus spits and picks up some uh, spittle dirt and takes it and puts it in the eyes of a blind man, and that blind man is able to see. And that's not the end of the story. You see, once he's able to see, then this great miracle causes a stir, and the Pharisees get involved, and there's an investigation of this blind man who can now see and how that's possible and there's this interchange between the two of them we see these ironic statements that come out 
One of them is from the blind man. He says this, You do not know where he is from, speaking of Jesus, and yet he has opened my eyes. So in other words, who is really blind here? Why should the student, the one whose eyes have been opened, be teaching the religious leaders about Jesus? They're the teacher. He's the student. And yet he's the one, the the blind man who can now see is teaching the ones who say they can see that they are actually blind. Jesus later doubles down on this irony by declaring within earshot of the religious leaders, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind may see and those who say they see may become blind. This irony should not be missed for us. We should ask, who is really blind? And Wallace, in his commencement speech, elaborates on the unconscious motivations that are in each and every one of us by writing this. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they were what tap uh, meaning, real meaning into your life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never ever, uh, you will will always ever need more power over others. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They lurk underneath our consciousness. The Pharisees' default setting is that they are the conscientious ones, the ones who were doing the right thing, saying the right thing. And yet underneath that, is this desire to protect. They had a lot. They were the ones who had the power, and so they got together to have a conversation about how they keep said power. And they missed the very thing that they were meant to see the most in their life because they were worshiping fear and they were walking around in the darkness Going back to the thesis statement in the Gospel of John, we see this at the very beginning when John says this, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then in a very climactic way, we see the words of Jesus from the cross. You remember the phrase that he speaks in that moment. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. What a gracious statement. 
Jesus gives. He knows that there are unconscious motivations, the things that are happening in the dark that cause death and destruction to happen in this world. And he says, forgive them, for they don't even understand what they are doing. In light of this, I think it's important for us to heed this example, this negative example, and to ask ourselves, what is in the light and what is in the darkness for us? Using a religious example, because especially those of us who are in ministry, we need this check as we go about doing the business um, that God calls us to do. We need to be reflective. All of us who want to live in the kingdom need to be reflective on why we're doing what we're doing for God, right? And to ask that question is to help us to become conscious of our motivations. Uh, There's a pastor, one of the people in my doctoral program shared this little quote that I think is helpful in thinking along these lines. It's a teaching on Matthew 21, which is a parable that Jesus gives about a vineyard says this, Jesus tells us a story about wicked tenants who want to take over a vineyard. A vineyard would have been repossessed land, taken from farmers, turned to an export crop, where they are now sharecroppers. And the story is a commentary on economic systems that use people and also a hit at leaders who are doing a lousy job. But what if it is also about us? about our urge to take over religion and make it ours. God, I confess, sometimes I want to possess your vineyard to make my religion work out for me, not merely to receive it, but to control it, to manage your grace, to center it on me. I repent of my mutiny. We must ask ourselves again, today, have I set my heart on working for God in God's vineyard? Or have I asked God to bless my plans and to go to work for me? This is two very different ways of walking out our faith. I think we have a picture of this. If just for one moment, maybe you want to meditate on the fish. Okay, having this conversation. And I just want to remind you of the responses that took place in the scripture, right? The, the first one that we saw in light of the resurrection of Lazarus, there was a group of people that the light went on for and they believed, right? And they, from there, became disciples. They responded to the resurrection of Lazarus by deciding that they wanted to believe in who Jesus was and they lived and walked in the light. They are the conscious fish that know what water is. And then there was another group that saw the raising of Lazarus and they decided to get in the drama, right? They were like, oh, Jesus, look what he did. That's going to get him in trouble. I'm going to go take him to the people that are going to be upset by this. And so they enter into that drama cycle, and that was their response to who Jesus was and what he did. 
And then at the very end of our story, we see this other group of people that's sort of hanging out going, I wonder if Jesus is going to show up. I wonder what, is he really who he says he is? And so we see these different groups and we can think, you know, in our day-to-day lives, in our walking everyday lives, how are we doing? The theologian Baxter Kruger talks about a time when he was coaching his son's Little League and he was thinking all about how, uh, how smart he was as a theologian and how he should be off writing a book and how he was wasting a time being at his son's Little League practice when all of a sudden he had this download insight from God. Like there is more Trinitarian activity happening at this baseball field than there ever is in his great studies as he was working on writing a book. How we might walk into the supermarket might be another example. Maybe you have some days where you are in a rush and you're feeling kind of tired and low and so what you see is the person cutting you off as you're trying to get to the vegetables that you need to get to and you're feeling kind of annoyed that the things that you want to be at the grocery store aren't there in the place that you want them to be because they rearranged everything and you hear the crying baby in the corner and you're frustrated and it's annoying you and you see everybody as you walk through the grocery store as somebody who's essentially in your way to getting to that time when you can relax. And then there's another way to walk into the grocery store. You might, you might walk in and you might say, wow, look at all of the things that are here. Unbelievable amount of food and variety. Look at these people that have the same struggles, that have the same worries and concerns that I have. Look at that beautiful baby there that shows us that new life is possible in the world. And you might have a nice conversation with the person at the checkout counter and have that exchange. You can tell the people that are walking in the light, can't you? And we both uh, have lived in both of these places. We can be uh, awake and yet dead inside kind of like the walking dead, or we can be a people that want to say, no, no, I'm going to bring my full attention and awareness because God has given me his full attention and awareness, and therefore I'm going to live in a place that isn't in the darkness. One last uh, illustration really building off of last week's sermon and the question that we ended with This is just a little picture, an image of a cave, right? And we talked last week about Lazarus, and uh, it was wonderfully illustrated by Rob that, that one of the questions we might ask ourselves is if our name was spoken and we were laying in that grave, would we want to come out and live in light of the resurrection? One commentary writes on this very theme saying this, Over us, too, has rung out the voice of authority, Jesus' authority. Come forth. And some of us started up to the newness of life and being, 
but others of us hearing have only stirred a little and dropped off into the sleep of death again, choosing the cramped darkness of the tomb to the interest, the color, the fullness of life Christ offers them. And so the invitation goes out again today. Do you want to fall back into that tomb? That cramped but comfortable place that we know all too well? Or do you want to come out and live into the fullness of life that Christ offers each and every one of us? A helpful prayer, I believe in this, to move us from places of certitude into places of actually taking inventory of where we're at is a prayer by Thomas Merton. It's a famous prayer. It says this, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road. Though I may, not, may know nothing about it, therefore will I trust you always Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I love that humble expression that I may not know at all, but I do have the right desire. May God place in you a desire to get out of that tomb and go live and walk in his light. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you to bring uh, ourselves and, and wonder with you, God, where are the places uh, that we have left unchecked, um, that are still unconscious and in the dark? And Lord, in those places, we ask that you would shine your wonderful light to bring freedom from the things that hold us down and lay us in bondage and death, to help us, Lord, to have the energy and the uh, desire for the things that will bring life and health and goodness. We desire to bear good fruit for you, Lord Jesus. And so help us to not be uh, people that just are close to the truth, but help us to be the people that embody and embrace your truth and all that we say and do. Penetrate every last part of us with your love this morning, Lord Jesus. In your holy name we pray, amen.